everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. Uh, this week we have Alex Rabinowicz on the show. It's a real treat for me to talk to him because he's somebody that uh, was important in my own graduate experience, and I've used his books in um, my undergraduate teaching and graduate teaching as well. We'll be talking today with him about the Bolsheviks in power, the first year of Soviet rule in Petrograd. This is uh, Alex's third book um, on the Bolsheviks. He wrote a book quite a while ago on the July days, and then he wrote a book on the actual seizure of power in October. And this book takes the story further into the first year of Soviet rule in Petrograd itself. So uh, there's a lot of ground to cover, and I think we should get to it. Uh, Here's the interview. Hi, Alex. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine. Uh, we're uh, just getting over the um, after effects of uh, Ike. Yesterday, uh, we wouldn't have been able to talk because uh, we didn't have electricity for most of the day. Is that right? All the way in Indiana. Is that true? Yeah. I did not yeah. know that. No, we didn't get I lost. Uh, I lost um, uh, the uh, cold game. So, yeah, uh, right. It was dear to my heart. Yeah, right. No, that's interesting. We didn't have any such thing here. It's uh, Yeah, we had floods earlier in the year, but no Ike this time. That will make it histor- easier for historians to date this conversation since we just mentioned a hurricane. Um, I should tell our listeners that today we're uh, extraordinarily fortunate to have uh, Alex Rabinowicz on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Bolsheviks in Power. Um, I, I can tell you that when I was in graduate school uh, reading – uh, Alex's books was uh, absolutely necessary, and uh, now that I teach graduate school, I can tell you that it is equally necessary. We assign them to all of our graduate students here at Iowa who study Russian history. So we're really, really fortunate to have one of the founders of the field and somebody who is ex- still very active in it and extraordinarily important. So um, I will really say to the listeners and say to Alex that it's all my pleasure to do this interview today. It's really quite a treat for me. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, that. it's absolutely my pleasure. So if you would do us the favor of saying just a little bit about your own background, how you got um, where you went to school and how you got interested in Russian history and how you came to write your first books, we'd be very pleased. Well, I'll try not to get uh, bogged down because um, my earliest years had a lot to do with uh, shaping my uh, my uh, my education and my uh, my career and my life. Uh, I was born in London, uh, England. Um, my dad um, was a native of St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, he had uh, he had immigrated, uh, fled actually, um, uh, during the period of the uh, book which we're going to talk about today, the Bolsheviks in power. Um, uh, my mother. Uh, was Russian. Uh, she had been an actress in. Uh, mm-hmm. In uh, she was from Kiev, uh, but uh, Russian Jewish, and uh, uh, in Russian uh, theater in Europe when uh, she and my father met. In fact, I'm now looking on one side at my mom uh, in a costume from a show probably in the uh, uh, early 30s in Europe, mm-hmm. and on the other side. Um, the the uh, cover of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, uh, which my dad founded and edited that uh, right? for most of his life. Is and, that right? Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, and it, 
It says in memoriam, Eugene Rabinowitz, a voice of conscience uh-huh. uh, for the atomic age is stilled. Um, anyway, so that's that's the uh, that's the milieu in which I grew up in. I learned Russian before English. Mm-hmm. My twin brother and I, uh, Victor, is my twin brother. He is the uh, former uh, senior vice president of the MacArthur Foundation. Now that retired. And uh, my father had been trained as a biochemist, a physicist. Um, He had first fled um, in August 1918 to Poland, uh, uh, couldn't finish his Ph.D. in Warsaw because of the havoc. Um, Managed to get to Berlin, studied with Einstein and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Max Planck, von Lau, the, the sort of key figures in physics and biophysics uh, at the time. Um, and he was fortunate enough to uh, uh, to get a job at, uh, uh, at um, the University of London, so he was able to get out of Berlin before Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he was equally uh, lucky and fortunate uh, to get an offer from MIT while he was at the University of London. So mm-hmm. He escaped the war, and we escaped the war, and mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, in uh, uh, Wartown, Massachusetts, outside Boston, mm-hmm. where my dad was at MIT, but always surrounded, and maybe we can talk about that later, but always surrounded by um, the cream of the uh, Russian immigration yeah. in the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, East Coast. And uh, I myself went to... Uh, uh, well, I, 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 we moved. My dad was on the Manhattan Project and went back to MIT. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, when I was in junior high school, um, he was on the Manhattan Project. Or actually, I was in grade school in fifth and sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we were at the University of uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Then moved back to. Uh, my dad got an offer from the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I went to high school in uh, in Champaign, mm-hmm. and, by, and then I went to uh, a small college, um, and I, I I've been teaching at a large university all my life, but uh, still very devoted to uh, to my college, and and most people have never heard of it. But uh, and where was that? Knowing, knowing that you graduated, I think from Grinnell. I did. I graduated from Knox. Oh, there you go. I think we played them in basketball many times, and they beat us every time. <laughs> yes, I know Knox very well. I, I, I understood from somebody that you played basketball. Did you play for Grinnell? Yeah, I did play for Grinnell, yeah, and I still played. I just retired. I'm about the same age as Michael Jordan, and I just retired last year. I just like to put I my see. name in a sentence with Michael Jordan. That's really all right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, played, I know Knox very well, yeah. I played, uh, but this was way before your time. Um, tennis um, against the Grinnell team for Knox. Oh, uh, is that right? At one point, uh-huh. uh, then, I then went to the University of Chicago, where uh, I had my. Uh, I was interested in political science, um, but took a course in Russian history. Uh, I, I had been um, uh, sort of drawn to Russian history and culture by the milieu in which I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, we we uh, just to back up a hair. We spent summers, um, uh, the first with two couple of summers after we uh, got here, at the summer home in southern Vermont, 
of uh, uh, Mikhail Kapovich, who uh, really? you know well. Yes, I do. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, among the regular guests were people like uh, Nabokov, Vernadsky, Zemashev, Pizotov, Kerensky, Zemzinov. After we were there a couple of years, then um, my father bought a farm, which uh, got a, a, a 122 acres for $2,200, <laughs> which he kept mortgaging for years and years and years, and uh, which we still have and mm -hmm. still love and spend mm -hmm. a lot of time there, but now we are the only Russians there. Yeah. Somehow, um, uh, the Karpovich... Um, a farm which is no is no longer in in, in Karpovich's hands. Um, we're more uh, liberals, um, uh, so or, or, or um, moderate socialists such as uh, Kerensky and Brunatsky. Uh, uh -huh. uh, although my father um, uh, was too young to be in politics, um, uh, he always said he he would have been a cadet. Um, a liberal, the, the Russian, mainly mm -hmm. Russian Liberal Party, um, and at our farm somehow uh, uh, people like Boris Nikolaevsky, uh, the archivist of uh, social democracy mm -hmm. and the Menshevik, Iraq uh, Lee Saratelli, um, mm -hmm. one of the Menshevik ministers mm -hmm. in uh, Kerensky's government, uh, people like that uh, tended to be at our place, but. We did mushroom together and uh, <laughs> uh, sort of interact, and uh, that's where I sort of developed my first love for uh, Russian history and culture. Yeah, I mean that's a remarkable story. You should write your memoirs of that if you have a chance. I, you know, well, I, mean, I have. I, I've done it. I've done it partly. Um, you know, um, Sheila Fitzpatrick has uh, has a uh, has a, uh, a memoir about how she became a revisionist in the current issue of the Slavic Review. Mm -hmm. There is a um, uh, there's sort of an addendum to that uh, on the uh, on the Slavic Review website in which I talk about how I became a re mm -hmm. revisionist I and, had to read and that. bring some of that some of that in. And I also um, uh, on the 280th uh, anniversary of Petersburg University uh, a few years ago. Um, uh, uh, St. Petersburg University published a three-volume book on famous graduates of St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. from Herzen to uh, Benoit, um, you name it. They mm -hmm. seemed to have gone to St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg University. Anyway, I was asked to do one of them on, on my dad, mm -hmm. and I collected a lot of family archives and letters. And uh, he's a poet and a and uh, uh, the specialist for many, many years in photosynthesis. And uh, mm -hmm. Um, and I had all that material and, and photographs and whatever, and I finally got it together and uh, wrote a long essay. In mm, which, terrific. Uh, at least some of my memoirs are in there. And I, I, I figure I'm too young at 74 to yeah, talk you about can, memoirs. You can definitely wait a few years. Although I had a friend uh, who wrote his memoirs at 22. You know, me too. But that's what he did. But I, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, most of our listeners won't know this, but that, that world of Russian emigres is now largely gone. Um, and it used to be very strong and dynamic. There were journals that were published entirely in Russian for these Russian immigrants. They found in a lot of the small, what were called the small magazines. And it used to be a very vibrant community. I know I heard a lot of this from my own dissertation advisor, 
Nikolai Valentin Sreznowski. Um, but now I think that it's largely it's gone now. I mean, maybe yeah, it's, people, it's yeah. largely gone, and the, and the kids, uh, uh, I count me among the kids, yeah. um, uh, are all that's left, and uh, I think a kind of a, a dull, um, a dull uh, 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 sort of um, uh, offspring compared with uh, with the liveliness of the great ones. Well, certainly. Uh, but the, anyway, yeah. and Karpovich, uh, for one, had founded. Uh, uh, the Novi Journal, which was one right. of the main That's what I meant. Uh, yeah, right. journals, yeah. and uh, was one of the founders of the Russian Review. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that's in, and 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 even in Vermont. I mean, um, uh, we got uh, the new Russian word Novi Ruskoslovia. Novi yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, every day, and that uh, <laughs> we were about uh, in both cases, we were about two three miles. Uh, of, uh, uh, from the p- local post office, and uh, and it uh, with no car, and so uh, uh, the, the the daily chore that uh, every, most many of the people would would uh, take part in was going down to the post office, getting the reduced slow dividing up the pages and reading them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, then um, at Knox there was nobody in Russian history, mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, and I developed an interest in political science um, and history, and I went uh, from Knox College uh, to the University of Chicago, uh, where I was in the International Relations Committee with thinking that I would somehow get into uh, international things. And uh, I took my first course in Russian history from Leopold Hamson, mm-hmm. who was then in Chicago. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, well, he never got to the revolution of the revolutionary period. He just really uh, uh, was so uh, wonderful uh, in inspiring students, and mm-hmm. uh, and he, of course, he's still alive. And still yes, he is. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, he uh, he was one of the main um, uh, forces that attracted me to uh, to a professional interest in Russian history. Then I had to do, do a two-year stint at that time. Um, uh, everybody had a service obligation. I had done. Uh, I had been on uh, ROTC at Knox, uh-huh. uh, in ROTC at Knox, and had a two-year obligation. I spent two years in the army, then came back, finished my MA at the University of Chicago with uh, with Hampson, where I did a dissertation on Maxine Gorky's uh, visit to America in uh-huh. 1906, uh-huh. Um, which I've never published. And then I um, came to IU, I, uh, Indiana University, uh-huh. Indiana University. Um, um, was then a budding center of Russian studies, um, and uh, uh, I did uh, I did my uh, PhD here. Um, the, the, my main influence here was uh, uh, John M. Thompson, if, mm-hmm. if you know that name. Yes, but, I do. Um, um, I, he uh, he was he was a wonderful wonderful. Teacher, and he he is still also producing. He does a uh, he he redoes his uh, basic text in Russian history mm-hmm. um, every four or five years. Mm-hmm. And he teaches. Uh, he lives in Maine and teaches at a um, uh, a branch, I think, of the University of Maine for mm-hmm. seniors. Um, but anyway, he he instilled in me a love of research, which has stayed with me the, my whole life. And and Bob Burns, Robert Burns, uh, one of the founders of Russian studies sure, in the yeah. United States, but uh, very conservative, um, uh, 
Jack Thompson, John, he uh, he had a much more nuanced view. Uh, at that time, Robert Tucker, um, the Stalin biographer, was yeah. also at Indiana University. I studied with him, and between the two of them, uh, they really instilled um, uh, a sort of a more detached view of uh, uh, the Soviet Union and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I detached enough to do uh, to do serious research, and so. Um, I had been so taken by Ceratelli uh, when he came to visit us in Vermont that um, I decided I was going to do. Uh, 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 that seems funny now. Um, a uh, biography of Ceratelli, mm-hmm. easy enough. And uh, the problem was I didn't know Georgian, and I got um, uh, I got sort of uh, three or four months into it, realized that without Georgian. Um, it was hopeless to do a serious biography of Iraqi Tsaratelli, who was a, 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 very, uh, a Menshevik, but a very central figure in 1917 Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Phil Mosley, who, uh, who had been a diplomat and was then teaching history at, uh, at Columbia, um, uh, we had lunch. He came to visit at Indiana. He had known uh, Tsaratelli. He said, you know, he said, uh, why don't you look at uh, uh, Ceratelli in, uh, in 1917, and particularly in July, because uh, he was really, really central to, uh, to developments there yeah. and so, uh, then. And so um, I sort of transferred my interest from, um, from a biography of Ceratelli to the Ceratelli and the Mensheviks in uh, uh, in July 1917, mm-hmm. and, and um, very quickly, even before I went uh, on the exchange in 1963-64 um, to Russia, I saw, um, you know, I had I, in every way I had I was I was sort of uh, shaped um, by by the circle I grew up in, and by ROTC, and by the Cold War, and mm-hmm. by the McCarthy area, all of which I had lived through before then. Mm-hmm. Um, to be to be anti everything to do with <laughs> Russia and the revolution, and, but there was such. And here I credit Thompson with uh, with with making me sort of instilling me a loyalty to sources. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, here I, I saw this incredible discrepancy, even in the sources that you could see then, which were somewhat limited. It was be many, many years uh, until I would get to see Russian archives. Mm-hmm. But even in the sources I could see, there, uh, I could see there was a huge discrepancy between the tra- traditional view of the Bolsheviks in 1917, held by uh, Tsaratelli, that they were a f- small group of fanatics mm-hmm. led by Lenin, financed by the Germans. Mm-hmm. Um, et cetera, et cetera, um, and what was coming out of the sources, the memoirs, the newspapers of the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. Uh, they were, were available, and it was quite clear that, that the Bolshevik role was much more complex, the revolution was much more complex, there was a real question in my mind about German money, um, and so that's, uh, so I quickly switched uh, from uh, Ceratelli uh, in the summer of 1917 the complexities of the Bolsheviks in uh, from February to July 1917. Mm-hmm. That's how I came to write my first book, Prelude to Revolution: uh, The Petrograd Bolsheviks and the July Uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I I graduated. Uh, I got my PhD at uh, Indiana in 1965. You stop me if I'm talking. To no, you go ahead. Um, and uh, I taught at uh, at USC for a couple of years. Um, uh, finished the book. It came out. Uh, this was in uh, 1968, um, and uh, I got an offer, which was very unusual at the time. At the time. Um, they didn't. They uh, universities normally did not hire their own. Uh, I, I think probably places like Harvard did, mm-hmm. but uh, but state universities like Indiana certainly did not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but um, but I feel very fortunate that uh, that I was hired by Indiana, mm-hmm. and that was in 1968, and mm-hmm. I've been on the faculty of Indiana University ever since. That's a great career. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's really great. Why don't we um, begin talking a little bit? Let's. Uh, talk shop a little bit here and let's go actually I, I wouldn't mind going through the three books because I should tell the listeners uh, that there are actually uh, three books on this period the first one which you've already mentioned is Prayer to Revolution the Petrograd Bolsheviks in July 1917 and that's 1968 and then the second book is the Bolsheviks come to power which is about the revolution in Petrograd and that came out in 76 and then the third book is the one that we're actually talking about today or we're going to talk the most about which is the Bolsheviks of Power um, the first year of Soviet rule in Petrograd, and that's just come out. But let's go back to the first book. Uh, what was the primary finding of Prelude to Revolution? Um, because it does have kind of a revisionist moment in it, if I recall. Yeah, um, the biggest finding uh, at the time, the standard interpretation uh, of the um, uh, events of uh, June and July 1917 are that they were a failed were that they were a failed attempt by the Bolsheviks to seize power. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as studying uh, the period 1917 to July, um, February 1917 to uh, uh, to July 1917, uh, it, it quickly became apparent that uh, that uh, it was much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all. Um, very quickly after February, uh, there was great disenchantment among workers and soldiers uh, with the results of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Great frustration. Um, I meant perhaps that's endemic to uh, to revolution mm-hmm. to satisfy uh, the uh, the hopes and dreams that mm-hmm. uh, are born during a revolution. And this came very quickly in Russia. My father, my father uh, remembered. Um, those February days, mm-hmm. uh, marching down the streets in the euphoria that uh, sort of uh, captured everybody, mm-hmm. but um, but that didn't last long, and um, and uh, so so that there was uh, there was dissatisfaction, very growing dissatisfaction with the continuation of the war, and Russia's participation in the war, and uh, the results of the revolution, uh, particularly with regard to food, uh, February. Um, revolution had been caused uh, in, a ma- in major ways by uh, bread shortages, and those shortages uh, continued, and mm-hmm. um, and they got worse. And uh, and uh, uh, so 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 that there was this ferment from below. Um, uh, the um, uh, the Bolsheviks um, were the only party that um, that stood for immediate peace, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, a peace land and bread mm-hmm. and and uh, formed during the um, February Revolution were Soviets as kind of a counterweight to uh, 
a popular counterweight uh, worker, soldiers, and peasants to the to the um, what was considered then the elitist provisional government by by mm-hmm. workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, the Bolsheviks uh, emerged as spokespeople for the uh, for the downtrodden, and really were. Now that's at one level. At another level, uh, there were uh, there were uh, great. Uh, I found that there were great differences among the Bolsheviks. They weren't the um, uh, sort of united, mm-hmm. uh, uh, unique group, small group of revolutionary fanatics that they were generally presumed to be at the time. But uh, it was clear to me that they were, they had a left wing and a centrist and uh, and, and moderate Bolsheviks. Yeah, if I could just cool. if I could just jump in right there, I know that when I was in college, uh, it, th- this view still had some currency, and I think it comes from reading too much Lenin. <laughs> I, honestly, I, I I think that um, one of the things that Prelude Revolution did, uh, in my own experience, was to show us that the Bolsheviks were not a kind of um, I can't remember the Leninist term for it. I guess it's democratic centralism, but right. it, it didn't really operate according to that principle at this point. And 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 it you know it it, it is almost ridiculous in retrospect to think that it might um, yeah. <laughs> when you've got when it suddenly it suddenly became a mass party yeah um and you've got all these uh, different very well educated uh, uh uh leaders um uh and um and uh, all these different pressures that different segments of the party uh were under and that's the um that's that's the uh other element um in the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, the Petersburg, the Bolshevik Petersburg Committee was under pressure from really, really impatient um, uh, workers who were getting hungry and hungry and getting more and more disappointed, and workers that didn't want to go to the front to uh, support a, a, an offensive that was pressed on Russia by the Allies uh, to put some pressure on the on the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was all this uh, dissatisfaction. And what I found was that um, Lenin, um, as hard as it is to uh, to accept, um, was trying to keep the lid on mm-hmm. until uh, until uh, his forces were uh, organized enough and had broad enough support, uh, particularly of the Russian peasantry, which uh, where the Bolsheviks did not have much of a following mm-hmm. at that time. Um, he was trying to keep the lid on. Um, meanwhile, the uh, a- as were moderate Bolsheviks who uh, who could continue to play a major role in uh, in, uh, in in revolutionary politics, mm-hmm. Bolshevik politics through October, actually through uh, January 1918. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about that later. In any case. Um, under pressure from um, uh, from from workers and uh, garrison troops that didn't want to go to uh, the front, um, the uh, Bolshevik military organization and the Bolshevik uh, Petersburg Committee uh, sort of um, organized the uh, July uprising, which was really pressure to uh, to get the Soviet. Uh, the All Russian Soviet, which was then dominated by moderate socialists, Mensheviks and mm-hmm. SRs, uh, to take power. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lenin, uh, actually during the July days, and probably one of the uh, during start at the start of the July days, and probably one of the best signs that he didn't have anything to do with it, uh, is the fact that he was out on vacation. 
mm-hmm. um, and didn't get back to uh, to Petrograd, uh, which was the uh, wartime name mm-hmm. of St. Petersburg, um, uh, until the uh, movement was well underway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, uh, going back to your original question, um, what I think my book did was to... I, you know, I hope I'm not being um, sort of sort of grabbing too much for myself, but I think it, in a lot of people, it established uh, the uh, the principle that the Bolsheviks were not monolithic in uh, mm-hmm. in 1917. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think one of the things the book does is it sort of scotches the conspiratorial theory of the Russian Revolution. That is, that there was a very small group of people who were um, doing absolutely whatever they could. Uh, in order to uh, gain power, including all kinds of subterfuge and things like this, because the Bolsheviks were largely, as you point out, acting in the open. The party was not united. There was an active effort to curry favor among factory workers and soldiers. They, they had, they they were forced to start practicing real politics. And uh, 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 exactly, and uh, and there was there unlike other parties, there was. Um, uh, the, the Bolsheviks had very, very close links in the uh, in the barracks and the factories, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, rank and file uh, Bolsheviks uh, uh, had had real influence on decision making, um, uh, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can see it. So, so the party is, uh, as opposed to this closed, secretive, uh, monolithic party. It is uh, virtually the, the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's uh, transparent. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's open. It's uh, it's sort of interactive <laughs> with the masses, um, and it's operated relatively democratically. It's funny you mentioned um, <laughs> reading the uh, newspapers, and one of the most revelatory things I ever discovered, and I believe this was in graduate school, was that the newspapers at the time, in the summer of 1917, were describing almost exactly what the Bolsheviks were doing. And they were publishing some of these things themselves. So this notion that we have—I was going to say—this notion that we have of this very closed, secretive organization—you can't be very closed and secretive if you can read what's going on in the newspapers. Sure, and you can buy on the streets. You can buy the newspaper of the Bolshevik military organization. Yeah. You could buy uh, Pravda, uh, the party paper. Yeah. And you could compare the two and see how they differ. Yeah, and exactly. And that, yeah. that was the way. Yeah. Um, I came to my conclusion, sure. um, but it was uh, it was just a marvelously uh, fruitful topic yeah, for which I'd be eternally grateful to uh, to Mosley and um, and, um, and the response to the book uh, um, uh, surprising to me um, was very was really uh, very positive. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the other thing I uh, you mentioned that uh, that Lenin. Uh, uh, reading Lenin is one of the reasons why uh, there was this view of the monolithic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also the immigrants, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, because uh, you know here they had been uh, uh, sort of uprooted and forced out of their country, and it seemed to them that uh, the only one way one could explain it mm-hmm. was um, was uh, by uh, by uh, a uh, a military coup, mm-hmm. uh, probably financed by the Germans. I mean, they 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 really, and over time, they mm-hmm. became more and more wedded to that idea. Mm-hmm. That was the idea I grew up on, but mm-hmm. that, that I was quickly disabused of uh, as I looked at the uh, 
at the newspapers. And um, in, in the 1920s, as opposed to the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, um, uh, really interesting documents were published in the Soviet Union, um, uh, and, and work in them uh, mm-hmm. was very fruitful. Mm-hmm. So all in all, I had a wonderful experience, which, um, which sort of set me off uh, on a path which, uh, which is sort of uh, really, really crazy. I mean, um, <laughs> if you look at, uh, just to skip ahead for a minute, if you look at my three books, um, the July, uh, uh, the book on the July uprising, which takes three months. The um, the Bolshevik come to power, which takes the uh, revolution through October 1917, um, and then uh, the first uh, uh, the Bolsheviks in power, the first year of Soviet rule in Petrograd. I have spent my entire life. My entire life, in three years <laughs> yeah. uh, of Russian history, uh, and it, it, it is almost impossible for me to believe. But I have to tell you that um, it was so wonderful um, uh, finding out all these uh, things that uh, cut, cut, uh, uh, sort of under undercut um, standard interpretations and raise new questions. Each book raised new questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the um, the July book raised uh, raised uh, sort of uh, um, uh, um, illustrated this uh, very different party than uh, mm-hmm. was traditionally uh, thought of. But it also uh, this uh, this uh, this chaos that ensued because of the differences. In July, then raise the question of how the Bolsheviks got it together for October. Yeah, let's talk about that now. Let's go to the second book, The Bolsheviks Come to Power. Sure. sure. Um, well, for the, the Bolsheviks uh, Come to Power uh, was written um, uh, in the late 60s and uh, 70s, and I say that because that was at a time when uh, archives were still closed and I mm-hmm. was still left with the same sources I had been mm-hmm. I had used for. Um, uh, 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 for the book on the July Days Prelude to Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, but um, uh, but I used the same paradigm, uh, the same paradigm of the divided party, and studied uh, uh, the different groups and uh, the revolution from below and the link between the two, um, and came out with uh, uh, with uh, the Bolsheviks come to power, which also was quite successful. Now. Uh, well, quite successful in very modest, very <laughs> modest and unambitious terms, in the sense that um, that I guess it's, uh, it was required reading at least for for, for quite a long time. And uh, 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 editions keep coming out. There's a Turkish edition coming out that right? in a few weeks, wow. and a Korean edition that came out <laughs> three months ago. That's great. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, I use the same uh, I use the same methodology. Um, and uh, um, uh, what had happened was that Lenin had been forced to flee um, uh, uh, Petrograd after the uh, failure of the July uprising, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't responsible for it. And um, and uh, the party was largely in the hands of Bolshevik moderates, who play a much, much more important role in all of 1917 than they're generally credited with. Um, I've just written uh, uh, an article for uh, Yusevitsky Zapisky 
on the role of the moderates in mm-hmm. uh, 1917 and 1918. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, uh, under their guidance, um, uh, the Bolsheviks uh, stood for uh, peace, land, bread, free Soviet, mm-hmm. certainly not Soviet power, all power to the Constituent Assembly. Their program... Um, uh, uh, after after uh, a bit of uh, a bit of um, uh, a downturn uh, after the uh, July uprising, um, I, I, actually I should mention as you as you well know uh, better than I, and certainly as well, there was a, a ra- attempted failed right wing coup mm-hmm. by um, uh, General Lavrenkov, mm-hmm. uh, the. the um, uh, chief of staff of the uh, of the uh, Russian army, and uh, when it failed, uh, the Bolsheviks uh, were the main benefactors, and uh, and they had a program which uh, which was very 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 appealing. It was for a multi-party, exclusively socialist um, government mm-hmm. to govern. Um, until the uh, convocation of the Constituent Assembly, which mm-hmm. would come um, uh, quickly. One, mm-hmm. of, one of the problems in 1917 was that uh, liberals were nervous about convening the Constituent Assembly during the war uh, when things were in, in such chaos. Mm-hmm. And so they had, they had, I don't know if they had, I mean, in any case, it, it was delayed and delayed and delayed and postponed. And as a result, uh, that was, uh, it the Bolsheviks stood for immediate peace. They were the only party that stood for immediate peace. They stood for immediate convocation of the Constituent Assembly and all those things. So they had a great deal of um, of popular support. Mm-hmm. Um, Lenin, mean, meanwhile, was in hiding. And uh, and what I think, uh, if if I just repeat the question that uh, that uh, uh, you asked mm-hmm. about the July uprising, what was the main thing that the uh, that the Bolsheviks come to power showed was that it was a real revolution, mm-hmm. uh, that there was uh, an element of a revolution from below and uh, uh, or, uh, uh, sort of a, re- a revolution from above, or leadership from above mm-hmm. um, by, by the Bolsheviks. And until the last minute, by the moderate Bolsheviks, um, Lenin, had Lenin, had, had it been the party that was described, um, uh, uh, in, in, in traditional uh, descriptions, uh, monolithic, uh, 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 responding to Lenin's every command. Um, in, in mid-September, way, way before things were ready, um, he called for the immediate seizure of power. Yeah. And uh, the party was so structured that uh, that it, it just ignored Lenin. It just ignored Lenin. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that was one of the... I think uh, eye openers. Mm-hmm. If there were eye openers, and the Bolsheviks come to uh, come mm-hmm. to power, but also that uh, what it was for, and uh, and the di- dynamics of it, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the the um, uh, the modern Bolsheviks, the the left Mensheviks, the left SRs, all worked towards transfer of power to Soviet mm-hmm. that. Uh, a Congress of Soviets, the Second Congress of Soviets, mm-hmm. in October 1917. Lenin was very much opposed to that. His main concern um, was uh, for the Russian Revolution to be a um, sort of signal for the start of the World Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were 
uh, at that time. Signs of revolutionary unrest in the German Navy, um, uh, actually uh, all over Europe, there were mm-hmm. signs of uh, unrest, uh, partly growing out of the war and the, and the uh, dislocation growing out of the war. And so, uh, you can't understand October, and you can't understand post-October, and you can't understand Lenin's behavior unless you link it to his hope and uh, that. Um, that it would spark the uh, world revolution and uh, the, uh, the uh, European revolution, ultimately the world revolution, and uh, and that the world was uh, they, they certainly certainly Eastern and Western Europe mm-hmm. were ready for uh, immediate revolution and uh, uh, and and he 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 expressed confidence. Um, uh, that uh, that the uh, that the Russian Revolution could not survive without mm-hmm. support from the West, mm-hmm. and um, so that was his, his assumption. The modern Bolsheviks uh, rejected the idea that mm-hmm. uh, that um, Europe was ready and uh, and uh, were anxious to build bridges and have a multi uh, multi socialist mm-hmm. uh, coalition uh, government. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the last minute, after um, after the stage had been set uh, for the um, uh, a transfer of power of the Second Congress of Soviets, uh, Lenin came out of hiding and was able to get enough uh, supporters, and the situation uh, had become so unstable um, that uh, that there was there were some elements of a military seizure of power. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so I, that that image of of, of sort of a, a, a popular revolution, um, Lenin's uh, Lenin's major role at the end, but secondary role, uh, uh, the, the 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 dynamics, the role of individuals. I tried really really hard, and I have in all my works, and uh, admittedly with only modest success. To make each book stand by itself, mm-hmm. and to have each book readable to uh, to an undergraduate, mm-hmm. uh, uh, at least um, uh, undergraduates who know a little bit about Russian history. Mm-hmm. I think you've um, succeeded uh, in that. that. <laughs> I hope so. I, it was hardest in my last book, and I'll explain why. But um, but but I really tried, and um, and and. Um, the uh, the Bolsheviks come to power was an alternate uh, history book club selection uh-huh. and uh, had done uh, did 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 quite well. It uh, um, it's recently been, been published and republished in the United States. Yes, and, that's right. As I say, yeah. many uh, uh, foreign editions. That's fantastic. And, uh, it was the first book on the uh, uh, on the October Revolution on the Russian Revolution. Published in the Soviet Union in the Gorbachev. Is that right? Wow, yeah, and, that's great. And, and, and one of the funnest moments in my life, one of the most uh, satisfying moments in my life, um, was that day in um, uh, in, in in 1989 um, when in the Progress uh, Publishing House in Moscow. Uh, my book was. Uh, uh, we had a, uh, the uh, the publishing company Progress that uh, published the book. Uh, had a had a 
book launch. And, uh, That's fantastic. To see so many uh, people who had called me a bourgeois falsifier <laughs> yeah, right. my entire life um, <laughs> there in class. Standing there, <laughs> singing your praises. And, and, uh, and also kids, people who were participating. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, they weren't kids anymore. Yeah. Uh, but uh, right. uh, they were more, uh, they were closer to my age. Yeah. But, uh, but it was just a, yeah, it must be remarkable. Well, let's go on to the, the, the present book, The Bolsheviks in Power, the First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd. And just to set the scene then, the Bolsheviks uh, have succeeded in taking power, but we should say in the name of the Soviets. And then, right. and then they find themselves in a position of having to govern until the Constituent Assembly meets and forms what will be, according to them, an all-socialist coalition government. That's not quite what happens, though. Maybe you could go right. on. Right. Um, well, what happens is that this coup that Lenin engineers at the end, um, which I just mentioned, uh, when when things were uh, when when everything was ready to uh, for the transfer of power to the uh, Second Congress um, and unstable, he managed to get. Um, uh, uh, he came out of hiding literally that day, uh, October uh, 24th, and 1917, into the old calendar, and um, and managed to get uh, uh, some of his followers who could see that, uh, who shared who shared his impatience, some some of whom, not all, so, who shared his impatience for a media revolution, uh, could see that now the stage was set, and so. Um, um, uh, he he, and you can really you, by studying it carefully, you can you can you can uh, uh, pinpoint the exact time when there's a change from a defensive strategy aimed at transferring power at the Second Congress of Soviets to uh, to seizing power before the, uh, the, the the Congress was convened. Literally, a matter of hours when mm-hmm. all this stuff takes place, and. Um, and uh, it happens under uh, uh, pressure from Lenin, and, uh, and 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 that had an enormous impact. Uh, for one thing, then the uh, Second Congress of Soviets was faced with a fait accompli: mm-hmm. uh, the Bolsheviks have seized power. Mm-hmm. Bolsheviks, uh, even before uh, it, it is convened, uh, in the name of the Petrograd Soviet, the City Soviet. Uh, Lenin says that power has been transferred, uh, announces that power has been uh, transferred. And um, so when the, when the um, Second Congress of Soviets um, meets, um, uh, uh, the Mensheviks, uh, with, 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 with uh, the sound of uh, cannon uh, literally uh, uh, shaking the windows, um, of uh, Smolny, where the uh, uh, where the uh, uh, Congress was held, mm-hmm. um, and with their colleagues under fire, their colleagues in the provisional government, the the Mensheviks and the SRs walk out mm-hmm. of the uh, Second Congress of Soviets, leaving uh, the Bolsheviks in the majority with the left SRs and some other socialist parties mm-hmm. still in. Even the Menshevik internationalists, led by Martov. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk out, uh, and so um, that that creates a situation. And 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 uh, the Bolsheviks tried at that moment to get the left SRs to join them in the government. Mm-hmm. The left SRs uh, were convinced that uh, that uh, a multi-party uh, a- 
government under the aegis of the uh, of the Soviets was absolutely necessary for the survival of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, they refused to participate. That mm-hmm. meant that and and, and the Mensheviki Internationalists had, had walked out. Uh, within incidentally, Nikolaevsky, um, um, uh, one of the guests that. Uh, Every summer at our farm yeah, in Vermont, right. uh, going out with uh, Markov and uh, uh-huh. uh, a wonderful memoir in Socialistsky uh, Vesnik, the Menshevik uh, Journal, um, uh, about that moment. But anyway, um, that leaves just the uh, Bolsheviks uh, to form a government. They uh, form an exclusively Bolshevik government, the Soviet Home, uh, which is supposed to be a temporary government. It uh, it is it is said so in the decree until the convocation of the Constituent mm-hmm. Assembly. Mm-hmm. And then the Constituent Assembly actually meets, but not for very long. Well, there, there's, there's, there's another, there's a, maybe one additional thing I'd like to add. Mm-hmm. Um, you've, got the, you've got the elections to the Constituent Assembly, uh, and they come on November 14th, about mm-hmm. two weeks after the uh, uh, or a little over two weeks after the Bolsheviks seized power, mm-hmm. and uh, they they had been under preparation since August, and uh, the uh, the voting lists uh, had been prepared in August, and uh, um, uh, so, so they didn't reflect. Not that the result would necessarily have been any different, but but they reflected the situation more in August than in October, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, so uh, the results of the Constituent Assembly, which are well known, um, uh, and I, I think which are unreliable, um, it gave the SRs, the Socialist Revolutionaries, mm-hmm. the uh, Peasant Party, the um, uh, led by Ch- uh, Victor Chernov, mm-hmm. uh, a majority in the country. Um, but uh, the key to the Bolsheviks uh, sort of ma- managing things is that the Bolsheviks won in, in Petrograd, and they won um, in the uh, in the Petrograd garrison and mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, in the northern front among soldiers in the northern front uh, on the northern front um, uh, uh, outside Petrograd. There is the result of which is that even though the SRs have a majority, the Bolsheviks. Um, uh, and, and and on the eve of the Constituent Assembly, the left SRs finally gave up uh, mm-hmm. and uh, joined the Bolsheviks. Uh, so that with the Bolsheviks and the left SRs in the minority, the Bolsheviks uh, and the left SRs still have control of the situation. They still have their majorities in the Soviets, mm-hmm. and they're able, um, without much trouble, to uh, uh, dissolve the... Uh, uh, dissolved the uh, Constituent Assembly, mm-hmm. uh, which ended uh, for um, decades and decades mm-hmm. uh, until the Gorbachev tree. Um, any hope of uh, a democratic uh, um, Western-style government in in, uh, in Russia, but I, but I, it, it is terribly important to uh, to get in that. Uh, the effects of the uh, of the election on uh, good fortune of the Bolsheviks from the Bolsheviks' point of view. Mm-hmm. And how did the Bolsheviks excuse the closing of the Constituent Assembly after it was closed? Um, uh, you know, it's really pretty ludicrous. Um, uh, they said that uh, uh, the, the, the the program that the SRs presented as the majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, presented was very close to uh, 
to the uh, Bolshevik moderate program and the Bolshevik program in 1917. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, the Bolsheviks, uh, the Bolsheviks and the left SRs had prepared uh, a sort of a platform, uh, a thesis written by Lenin uh, on how uh, on for the adoption by the, by the Constituent Assembly. When the Constituent Assembly uh, decided to vote on the SR uh, planks rather than the uh, Bolshevik left SR planks, the Bolshevik and left SRs walked out. Mm -hmm. They then announced in the Central Executive Committee, which was the leadership body of the Soviets, all Russian Soviets, that once they walked out, um, the um, the uh, uh, remaining um, uh, SRs, the Mensheviks had very, very few um, uh, delegates to the Constituent Assembly, and many of the cadet um, uh, cadet delegates had been uh, arrested. Mm -hmm. So it was mostly uh, SRs. They said uh, they said uh, literally this that um, it was no longer representative mm -hmm. of anybody. It was a bunch of counter-revolutionaries, and uh, mm -hmm. and it passed. And a, a lot of memoirists have have, I think, accurately um, uh, explained the failure of the Constituent Assembly, if you get right down to it. Um, uh, the bulk of, Russia, of, the, uh, of the Russian people um, uh, were not, uh, uh, the peasantry uh, primarily, um, were not versed in, in, in Western-style government. Mm -hmm. They had gotten a lot of what they wanted from the Soviets, um, and they just didn't care. Mm -hmm. And and what what Zinov and a number of other uh, leading uh, delegates write in their memoirs is that uh, uh, what what killed us was uh, was that the population was not ready to defend us. It really didn't care. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, you have some remarkable scenes in the book. I should tell the readers they're really wonderful scenes of the. Um, of the hall itself and the, uh, the the first and I believe last meeting of the Constituent Assembly, which uh, is something between um, what you might see on C-SPAN, that is the American Congress, and a riot, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Because uh, probably a little worse in the sense that uh, a lot they be the only visitors they would allow in in the upper balconies with soldiers and sailors that were armed. And yes. So they, they're cocking their guns. Yeah. Um, they're ready to shoot. It, 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 it was a little, you being a little soft there. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> was, yeah, uh, I can only imagine. Really, uh, it was, uh, and a number of the delegates were, uh, were, uh, were fearful that they wouldn't be able to, yeah. uh, of the SR delegates, that they wouldn't be able to return home alive. Um, uh, Lennon, uh, Lennon, uh, uh, said no, let him go home. Um, it was clear to him that there mm -hmm. wouldn't be any, uh, for, for the moment at least, there mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. uh, for the moment at least, there wouldn't be any strong response. Mm -hmm. There was nothing to worry about. So now the uh, Bolsheviks actually do have to govern uh, in conjunction with the Soviets, and uh, we get a movement in your book uh, from the closing of the Sichuan Assembly to the institution of Red Terror. Maybe you could take us down that road. Well, let me let me explain the connection between. 
um, the Bolsheviks come to power and the Bolsheviks in power, and mm -hmm. why I was driven mm -hmm. to, uh, to spend another 30 years <laughs> on, uh, on, on another uh, 12, months, uh, 12 months. I understand that completely, but maybe some of our, our listeners won't, but go ahead. Right. Um, well, I mean, here was a revolution that was um, staged uh, in the name of uh, free Soviets, a multi-party system, constituent assembly, a land of the peasantry, immediate peace, um, all those things, uh, by free Soviets um, and a relatively free party, and uh, Bolshevik party. And, um, and the standard interpretation is that having seized power, uh, Lenin, um, uh, uh, well, first of all, uh, there, there was no free party according to standard in, in mm -hmm. interpretation. Soviets, uh, Soviets weren't free at all either. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I know different from my research. Mm -hmm. But um, the one criticism from from people like um, uh, Pikes, mm -hmm. um, uh, conservative historians, um, that uh, that I found compelling was then if 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 what you say is true, if Soviet, if the party was relatively free. And democratic. If Soviets were relatively free and democratic, how were they so quickly transformed into uh, uh, an authoritarian party uh, controlling an authoritarian government? And uh, so that was a question that uh, that bugged me, bothered me, mm -hmm. and I had to try to answer. Mm -hmm. um, I spent uh, the 80s uh, with uh, with materials trying to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Uh, materials available in the United States and available available to me in Russia, um, and uh, uh, I, I was dissatisfied with the answers. Without because uh, very soon the Bolsheviks had closed down uh, uh, opposition newspapers, which were an important source of uh, um, uh, information for me. And um, uh, well, to make a long story short, a lot of the kinds of da data that I was able to collect on 1917 weren't available um, uh, for, uh, for for 1918 but, mm -hmm. um, uh, but, 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 but but the point I want to make is, is uh, the, the purpose is to better understand um, better understand the, um, uh, the the transformation that occurred uh, after the October Revolution mm -hmm. into the uh, into the horror that uh, the Soviet Union ultimately developed into, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, but without uh, without access to the kinds of sources I had for 1917, uh, it was very very difficult. Mm -hmm. I remember giving a, I was a, a senior fellow at um, at, Colum at Columbia for a couple of years, and I remember um, towards the end uh, trying to put everything together, and it just didn't hold together. Mm -hmm. Um, and so here I was, um, you know, already spent 10, 15 years on this book, and uh, and uh, I just wasn't at all happy with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that feeling of, boy, I'm going to show them, uh, that I had with uh, with the July Days and the October Revolution. And, um, um, uh, and, and then uh, in 1990, uh, during the uh, Gorbachev era, uh, first, uh, I think first probably Bob Tucker, then uh, then Steve Cohen, the mm -hmm. uh, Bukharin, uh biographer, uh, got into the archives, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I was on the uh, exchange, and uh, 
and and I asked for archives, and lo and behold, I was uh, given some. And then <laughs> all through the 90s, I kept getting more and more material, mm-hmm. um, and that answered many of the questions that uh, that I, that I wanted to uh, to answer mm-hmm. about the dynamics of the change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you the ultimate result, which you know because you've read the book, um, but maybe our listeners don't. That um, that um, uh, the answer it does not lie in Leninist ideology or some uh, uh, plan that was uh, hatched after the Bolsheviks seized power, but on the circumstances that confronted the Bolsheviks mm-hmm. after they took power. Mm-hmm. And those were um, uh, they uh, they uh, are, are are forced to rule. They they uh, they are not very really comfortable ruling. They're 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 born rebels. Um, uh, they uh, they first try to try to use the old institutions of government and then the old people, and uh, that doesn't work. Uh, meanwhile, opposition to them grows. Um, uh, the the party is uh, is uh, denuded by. Um, um, uh, by having to furnish uh, 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 people for the armed forces, for mm-hmm. uh, for, for work in Soviets, uh, for police work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the, the party becomes smaller and small, uh, smaller and smaller. Uh, the party membership becomes smaller and smaller. The um, the Soviets uh, the Soviets become smaller and smaller and less and less democratic. Uh, who who has time for you know finding out what the masses want and um, and uh, um, uh, playing by the rules um, uh, when you've got all these problems and then uh, and then the fear of uh, German invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do you do? You 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 you've only got uh, a fraction of people left, and not the smartest either, um, <laughs> uh, in the party because the smartest ones go into the Soviets, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you develop this siege mentality, which is what happened, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you lose uh, you lose these the, the ideals became uh, lost relatively quickly. What mm-hmm. I try to do uh, in the book is. Um, Show how these ideals, how these um, uh, sort of democratic uh, uh, um, structures, Soviets and the party, uh, are trans uh, begin to be transformed. Because the process, I'm going to—I'll uh, tell you later a little bit about uh, what I'm working on now. But this book raises questions too. Um, uh, um, Inevitably, uh, uh, willy-nilly, uh, often against the better judgment of the people involved, uh, the institutions are transformed into uh, uh, into uh, undemocratic institutions. The district Soviets, which are key to to uh, Soviet party at the local level, very democratic in 1917, become uh, sort of fiefdoms. Um, uh, that's what I, what, what I trace, I trace step by step, uh, first of all, how the, um, at the very beginning, how the, um, uh, the Bolsheviks don't have the slightest idea of, uh, <laughs> of a party, 
of, of a party-controlled uh, Soviet uh, mm-hmm. Soviet government, not the slightest. I got no instructions from above, um, uh, uh, and uh, I, I trace it through uh, uh, November and December and January with the Constituent Assembly, and then through the struggle over. Uh, of the Treaty of Brussels-Tusk and getting out of the uh, getting out of the war, mm-hmm. uh, and and the um, and the um, uh, great uh, uh, great conflict that raises within the party and uh, among supporters of the party and among uh, the Russian population, and then uh, and then the terrible terrible industrial crises of mm-hmm. the period, the uh, the the hunger. Um, uh, uh, leading to a situation where uh, there are so few people. Uh, we're talking about in, in a city of um, it would probably dwindle to uh, to way less than the two and a half million it was, but uh, but still to a large city, uh, to a party of um, of a few thousand. Now, when it becomes a party of a few thousand, then one, what comes to mind? Well, we'll we'll um, uh, uh, hold power by terror mm-hmm. and wait for the all the time waiting for the world revolution. Yeah, I think the book it's ends. Yeah. The book ends uh, with the uh, celebration of the first anniversary of the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, which I use to uh, to show uh, where these institutions, where the ideals are at that point, mm-hmm. and um, and it really was huge celebration. Still remembered. Uh, because at that time, um, it looked like uh, the the uh, some of the white armies uh, operating in the Civil War uh, had been defeated. Mm-hmm. But most of all, um, there were significant revolutions in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Kaiser had abdicated, mm-hmm. um, and it, it it really looked like. Uh, like things were finally going to turn out the way they had supposed when mm-hmm. they were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I had originally uh, 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 contemplating calling the book a "Price of Survival," mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah. and that that title, which which my wife, who is uh, editor uh, director of IU Press, and uh, and uh, uh, would have none of that. As well as <laughs> you know, editors decide everything in the end. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> she. Uh, he said, "Price of Survival" doesn't tell you what the book's about. Right, and, uh, could be uh, could be uh, love story, right? Yeah. Um, could be anything. And so um, she got, had me get rid of that. So that's the title of the last yeah, chapter. See. But um, but I see see this loss of ideals, this loss of democratic structures, as the price of survival. This hope of survival until the world revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see. I think it's important to put that in context because they really were waiting for something to happen abroad. The Russian Revolution wasn't just about Russia in the minds of the Bolsheviks. It was also about revolution spreading to Western Europe, where they thought it should properly proceed. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and I, I don't think they were prepared at all for actually ruling Russia outside a context in which there would be international revolution. Um, so when they had to actually do the business of government, they found themselves at kind of a loss. Um, they found themselves at kind of a loss. They tried. They really did try, and I show places where uh, examples of that. They really did try to maintain some of the structures and the ideals, um, and there were 
there were idealists uh, until the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, but they just couldn't uh, mm-hmm. couldn't couldn't do it. And uh, I end the book with um, in, in kind of a gory way. Um, uh, I mean, we get the celebration, but uh, it's uh, prefaced by the Red Terror in uh, Petrograd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, my dad left uh, Russia on uh, the middle of August. Uh, mm-hmm. left, left Petrograd, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully, because he would have been a yeah. shot. Yeah. Uh, the Red Terror in Petrograd was much worse than in Moscow, much worse than anywhere else, and mm-hmm. I tried to explain why. Mm-hmm. And I tried to describe uh, describe these this uh, these, uh, these this the terrible atmosphere, the terrible mm-hmm. uh, the terrible situation during the Red Terror mm-hmm. in 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 Petrograd, mm-hmm. and then uh, and end with the. Uh, with the celebration when the terror has sort of ended and everybody thinks, well, that was the price we had to pay. And that's mm-hmm. why I had called it originally yeah. the price of survival. Well, uh, maybe maybe the next edition. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I don't know, should, should we... Yeah, I was going to say, you know, thanks very much for spending all this time with us. We really appreciate it today. And we have a kind of traditional final question here on the show, as some of the listeners will know, and that is, uh, Alex, what are you working on now? Well, um, I got a uh, a Mellon Emeritus Fellowship. Oh, fantastic. To to, uh, do with colleagues in Russia um, the first uh, and only edition of the uh, of the protocols of the Petersburg Committee, uh-huh. uh, Bolshevik Committee in 1918, uh-huh. it was supposed to come out in 1928, was stopped by Stalin. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we're we're working on that, and so I'm going to uh, Petersburg fairly frequently. At the same time, I'm uh, I'm working on uh, a book which I tentatively called uh, the, the Petrograd Bolsheviks during the crises of 1919. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were uh, huge military crises then, and mm-hmm. it looked like uh, like uh, the whites, Udenich, uh, uh, would take mm-hmm. uh, uh, Petrograd and stifle the revolution. It didn't succeed, mm-hmm. uh, but it was during those that crisis that uh, that uh, uh, some of the things that I was looking for to happen in 1918 finally happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Where the uh, uh, the party uh, um, uh, began to uh, control the Soviets, mm-hmm. and uh, the two almost merged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Well, you have to promise to come on the show when you're done with that book. Well, I, I would be honored. I, I hope you do. Well, anyway, um, I should tell our listeners we've been talking to uh, Alex Rabinowitz about his new book, The Bolsheviks uh, in Power, the First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd. Um, Alex, thanks very much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Alex Rabinowicz about his new book, The Bolsheviks in Power, The First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd. It's just recently been released by Indiana University Press. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.